0: It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Welcome, movie lovers, to a very special episode of Movies You Should Love. I am Scott, and joining me as always is my cat Penelope, who will be running around in the background as I record this. Scarlet may also appear, and so may Thomas and Gwen, and I doubt Desmond will appear, um, because he's a bit more reclusive, as cats tend to be. But as I record this episode, this episode is... A very special episode because it was requested by one of the listeners. Uh, Jeff Simmons specifically requested that we take a look at the Matrix trilogy. Uh, Well, that's not entirely true. He requested that we take a look at the Matrix sequels. But I really felt like I couldn't do that without first watching the first Matrix movie. Uh, I thought I'd do the whole trilogy and then we'll do this, this one big fat episode all about the Matrix trilogy. I just finished watching the first one, and then uh, I'm recording this right now, and then I will sit down, I'll watch the second one, record that segment, and then watch the third one, and record that segment. Uh, so you have three very specific segments that you can jump in between if you want to listen specifically about Reloaded or Revolutions, you can do that. But first, we're going to start on The Matrix, a movie that came out in 1999 that was directed by the Wachowskis, and honestly, I'd kind of forgotten how cool this movie was, uh, this The first Matrix movie, I think, is really, it's very similar as far as, if you want to compare a quality movie to another quality movie, this actually reminds me a lot of what Lauren and I were talking about when we reviewed the movie Vertigo, in which Vertigo was a movie that Alfred Hitchcock used a lot of, he used all of the modern technologies and conveniences that filmmaking had, plus he pioneered a few new ones to tell a kind of of new and interesting story. And it kind of is the same thing Citizen Kane did. You know, when Orson Welles made Citizen Kane, it's kind of similar. And I'm not necessarily... <laughs> it might sound really funny to put this movie on the same level as Vertigo and Citizen Kane. But in a lot of ways, the Wachowskis did some similar things. They did some very similar... They had a very similar approach in which the this first Matrix movie really did use everything at their disposal. There's almost every single type of filmmaking trick and... Everything, everything that existed at that time, they used. Plus, they kind of pioneered a few new things, and they, they, they pushed other things even further than they had been pushed before. But, but I, I'm getting ahead of myself. The Matrix movie really is a very kind of typical hero story. It is the story of Mr. Anderson, played by uh, Keanu Reeves, in which he discovers that he is part of a much bigger story. I mean, there is... I mean, you, there's some very strong parallels to say the first Star Wars movie or the first Harry Potter movie or a lot. Of, I mean, people have co- been talking. I mean, this movie came out in 1999. People have been talking for years about the influences and the uh, some of the interpretations you could take with this movie because there is a very strong uh, religious and philosophical conversation going on here. And there, I, I've definitely heard and read a lot several articles about. How Morpheus, played by uh, Lawrence Fishburne, um, has a very strong John the Baptist feel, and if you want to compare Neo to Jesus, you really could. And um, it's fascinating. I mean, because that really is what's so interesting is that this movie, while it is a kind of standard hero journey, they the Wachowskis really did try to infuse it with as much uh, religious and philosophical. Um, Visuals and imagery and and even wording. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of things that are named after famous uh, philosophers or you know very specifically biblical um, characters and ideas. You know they fly around on the Nebuchadnezzar. You know old king from the Old Testament. Um, very interesting. I mean it's it's really a fascinating movie. And one of the things that I think is cool what they did for those of you who have somehow not seen The Matrix. The Matrix is. Uh, the story basically the concept is we what you see is not real or what you see is real but it's only real because that's the way your your mind or your brain is interpreting things you yourself are actually plugged into a very large machine and you your body is being used as a battery to kind of uh power the the robots the computers the machines um and in order for you to live and to live as long as you can, so they can use you for as long as they can, they feed you a a program. And so this basically, if you want to think about it as a dream, this you know my dream right now is basically uh, recording this podcast for you. You are you know listening to this podcast wherever you are at your computer, at you know driving to work, driving away from work, at work, and there are a group of people. A, a kind of a band of rebels, if you want to say, call them that, who have found a way to unplug from the Matrix, from this computer program, from this large machine. And they are now trying to free all humans from this basically delusion that they are now living in. So, I mean, again, immediately you can really start seeing there's a lot the the, the philosophical and religious parallels that are going on there. Uh, people have compared it to the old uh, cave. Uh, was it Plato? think it was Plato who, who told the story of the cave where there was a man trapped in a cave and he was only seeing shadows and he thought that was real until he got out of the cave and realized the shadows were just being... Anyway, it's a whole thing. I'll find a link. Uh, check out the website and I'll have links to a lot of this stuff because there is actually a ton to discuss about this. <clears throat> um, so... Once you are free of the Matrix, you you understand the rules of the Matrix. Once Once you can recognize the fact that all of this isn't real, basically you're able to make it as real as you want. And you're able to bend this computer program, you're able to bend this reality to what you want it to be. Which is a really, really cool concept because basically the Wachowskis made a movie or they created a universe in which any of us can be superheroes. You just have to believe. Um, and that's really a fascinating concept. And it, I think it lends itself very well to this particular hero's journey. And it lends itself very well to the over-the-topness of the climax and the conclusion of this film. Because it kind of addresses and subverts, I think, some of the complaints some people have about your standard superhero hero film. Or hero's journey, you know. You take Spider-Man for example. Peter Parker gets bit by a spider, and you know, just let's just look at the the first Tobey Maguire movie, Spider-Man. He gets bit by the spider. Um, he goes and he puts on this costume. He goes into a wrestling ring and fights this wrestler, wins easily, and then decides he's going to become a superhero. It's just like, it's just that. Like, And then the next day, he has this awesome costume, and he knows how to fight. He knows how to swing on webs. He figures it all out, practically overnight. You know, it, there is a little bit of a montage, but I mean, it really happens super fast, and immediately, he is Spider-Man, and he is awesome. And it is awesome, but in this movie, it makes a little bit more sense, because essentially, all it takes from our main char- character, Neo, all he has to do is believe, and if he can believe, then he is unstoppable. He is, he can do all of these great things. He can, he can slow down time. He can slow down the perception of time. He can slow down um, all. Of, you know, he can do these amazing things. He can fly. He can stop bullets with his mind. He can do all these things because he recognizes that this isn't real. Or again, if this isn't real, he can make it whatever he wants. Kind of as if you were being able to interpret and write your own dream as you were having it. Very, very fascinating stuff, um, and which, which actually, while we're on that subject, it, it might be this might be a good time to touch on. That is also some of some parents and some parent groups' uh, problem with this movie is that it tells the audience, basically, at least in this universe that Neo exists in a universe that looks a lot like yours, that you can do anything as long as you kind of. Uh, you believe it, and none of the, the authority figures in this movie are all bad, horrible people. Um, when I say authority figures, I mean the police officers and I mean the security guards. Everybody who essentially is at the whim of the machines in the Matrix. And this movie came out shortly. If you go back to 1999 here in America, there was a terrible school shooting at Columbine uh, High School, and a lot of people went immediately to the Matrix because the 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 boys responsible for that shooting. Kind of dressed like the Matrix, you know. That's what they said. They 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 were part of the trench coat mafia. They called themselves, and they wore black trench coats. And they wore all black, not unlike uh, Neo at the end of this film. And that leads to this very uh, divisive and interesting conversation about the influence of movies. And does a movie like this? Uh, does this movie, as one article puts it, does the Matrix? Does the Matrix inspire the disturbed? And I'm not sure if I'm really capable of commenting on it at this time. I do think there is a responsibility filmmakers need to have, but there's also a a responsibility that the audience needs to have and recognize that this is a work of fiction and that everything you see in movies can be or should be um, emulated. And I think, uh, and again, this is a conversation that we're not necessarily ready to have with this movie, or I'm necessarily ready to have with this podcast at this time, but I do think it's a multi-layered conversation, and I do think it's possible that um, one. I don't think I don't think movies are inherent. I don't think if anybody who watches this movie is going to turn out to be a violent person. Um, but I do think if you have a propensity for certain things, or if you are disturbed, or if you do have a mental situation, that a movie like this might give you ideas. Um, but I don't. I can't really blame the Wachowskis for that. I can't really blame. Um, Keanu Reeves or anything. you know. It's like this is just a movie and it's a fascinating movie to watch. Um, and so on that subject I'm going to uh, close it for now and uh, if you want to have more on this conversation please come by the website and we can talk about it some more. But for now I want to talk about The Matrix. And what's really interesting about this movie as well is a lot of the influences that went into this movie um, and the reason this movie was so successful and it, it had the the trilogy, and it had the video games and everything that came out of this, is that the Wachowskis brought brought something to Western cinema that had never really been seen before. And it could be argued nobody had ever seen anything like this anywhere before. Um, The only problem with that argument, I guess, is that it's clear that they were very heavily inspired by Eastern uh, cinema and uh, anime. Because you can go back, and the people have definitely done this, and you can find some articles. And um, there's even a story. I don't know how true it is. It might be entirely apocryphal. But the story goes that the Wachowskis took a copy of Ghost in the Shell, which is a pretty fantastic uh, animated movie from Japan. They took it to Joel Silver, the producer, and they they said, "Watch this movie. We want to make this movie for real." And if you if you if that's true, and it's kind of easy to see how that could be true because when you watch the Ghost in the Shell movie, it is very tonally similar. The story is very different, but there's a lot of visuals that are very similar, and a lot you know a lot of the, the storytelling style is very similar. Speaking of storytelling style, that is to me is the biggest um, the biggest thing that this movie does that is similar to kind of Eastern storytelling. It The beats of this movie are just a little bit off. There's just something about it that is not your typical Western story. And when you look at it, it's very easy to imagine this as an animated movie from Japan, which is, I think, really, really cool. And they do some things with um, live-action filmmaking that had never been done before, but had been done in animation in Japan, um, which is really, really cool, I think. Um, the other thing that is a big... Big part of the of the Matrix movies is the visual of the, some of the visuals they pull off of this. Specifically, everybody remembers Bullet Time because it was such a amazing iconic image in this movie that nobody had ever really seen before. And so, you know, immediately everybody started spoofing and parodying, and even there were other filmmakers that started using Bullet Time. And really, I don't think it ever worked outside of the Matrix. <laughs> I really, you know, I think it takes a very specific situation to create a moment where you should be able to slow down the story or slow down the filmmaking to the point where you have a bullet flying through the air with it, and you see the ripples of the of sound that it or of air that is being broken as the bullet flies through it. I don't think it should happen in Charlie's Angels. I don't think it should happen in. Um, Oh, it was the other movie I saw it in. I think it was The Art of War. There's certain movies where you just, it just doesn't need to happen in it because it's a very specific thing. But there's a very interesting story or argument that the Wachowskis didn't actually create bullet time. And what is bullet time? Uh, I'll answer both of those questions right now. Uh, the first is bullet time is what they call this thing, um, this filmmaking technique in which Okay, I need to back up even further. Sorry. Um, As you know, film (laughs) is basically uh, a sequence of captured images. It's single images being sped through a camera or being fed through the computer at such a speed that it looks like motion. Um, Typical filmmaking up to this point has been 24 frames a second, which means literally every second you are seeing 24 different individual frames of film. Um, When it's sped up, it looks like motion. And so one of the problems or one of the things that they wanted to one of the problems that they wanted to address and bend in this movie is that cameras can only move so fast. Not not even talking about frames a second, but the actual physical camera can only move so fast. And so to show that they that the matrix was something special and that people like Trinity and Neo were actually moving faster than Um, a typical human, or that they were kind of maybe a little bit more in charge of the situation than a normal person would be, they wanted to move the camera at 24 frames a second. They wanted the camera to move in space in the same amount of time it took the camera to move. And that's something that is actually physically impossible for the shots that they wanted to pull off. And so what they did was they created a rig in which they had 24 individual cameras uh, still shot uh, like, a, like a typical DSLR, a, a just a typical camera, it was on this rig. There was 24 of them, I think, in the first rig. And when they would hit a button, each one of those cameras would take a single picture at the exact same time. And so then when you put all of those frames together, you get this mo—this moment in time where you basically are able to capture the same image from 24 different angles at the same time. And when you play those, it looks like the camera is spinning around a person super fast. But while the camera is spinning around, the person is essentially locked in one single, uh, one single pose. And so that's how they got that shot of Trinity. That's how they got that shot of... Uh, Of Neo when he's bending over and the bullets are flying past him. That's how they got the shot of uh, Neo and Agent Smith fighting at the end. Um, Very, very fascinating stuff. And people have often credited the Matrix for pioneering that, um, but it's not, I don't know, people don't know if that's absolutely true. Because uh, Michel Gondry, who you might know as the director of Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind, and The Science of Sleep, and a lot of really cool music videos, used this same technique in um, a Smirnoff commercial, and I believe he also used it in a very well-known Gap commercial. I believe he was the director of the Gap commercial that also used this same technique, and the story goes that Joel Silver, again the producer of this movie, basically approached Michelle and was like, "We want to know how you did that. We want to buy that from you, and we want to apply it to this." I don't know if that's true because it is possible. Because I, I, I was doing some reading, and um, that's one story that came out of it. And there was also another story about a a kind of an, an architect, I believe it was. Um, it was artist Tim McMillan who. Um, may have pioneered this, um, who, who may have kind of created this thing, and then you. Ha- all I'm trying to say is, it's possible that three different people invented this technique at one time, um, because it's very possible. I mean, it just it kind of happens sometimes. People will have similar ideas, um, but it all they all kind of came out at around the same time. It was all very close to each other, and at the end of the day, it was the Matrix that propelled it through the stratosphere that made it a thing that was emulated and copied and tried to be used again and a lot of ways though the matrix did in such a way that it was completely owned by the matrix so now when you see it in other places um you immediately think of the matrix which i think is kind of awesome and i love those little those those things because honestly it's something that gives the matrix part of it it gives the movie a certain identity and it gives it a, a an eternal identity that other people... It actually encourages people, in my opinion, it encourages you to do something new as well, as opposed to just copying it. Because by copying it, you're kind of telling everybody, yeah, I like The Matrix 2, and I'm just copying it. (laughs) Um, So, you have that going on for it. And I think that was honestly one of the things that really made this movie, or that really made this movie as special as it still is. It's a movie that really does still hold up very well. Um, I mean, it's not that old of a movie, but, you know, it is 14 years old, and most of the special effects still really, really hold up. You can see certain things now. Um, it is 14 years old, and so, like, there are, you know, the, when you see the, when you see Zion, not, you don't see Zion in this movie, but when you see the uh, the squids, the little metal squids that fly through the ducks, um, they look a little bit more cartoony than you remember and there's certain little things like that there are a couple times you can kind of see the green screen not really but you can kind of go oh yeah that's not real um, but it holds up really really well and see that and that's kind of what I was talking about with the Witchowski's using technology the technology they had as well as pushing forward new technology whether or not they uh, created or had the idea for bullet time they pushed it even further and you and as i remember they pushed it further and further which each with each of the Matrix movies, it becomes more and more complex. They become much bigger shots. Um, and they also used, I mean, they use a lot of very practical sets. They use a lot of real locations, but then they also would meld those real locations with green screen to create different types of locations. And it's I mean, honestly, I could talk forever. I think we we as a <laughs> as a people could talk forever about the Matrix, about some of the imagery in the movie and the thing that they pull off. Um, what I do think is interesting, and I, I'll, I'll touch on this with the second and third movie more, um, is the way this movie ends. I think I think most people really like the first Matrix movie, and I think a lot of people just they have mixed opinions of the second and third movie. And I think it's, I think that's honestly why Jeff wanted us to review the sequels is because, um, the second and third movie are really kind of seen as inferior films to this one. And I think there should have been a little bit of, uh, foreboding (laughs) when, when they announced they were making the second and third movie, because what's interesting to me is, um, The way this first movie ends, ends very strangely when you think about it. Because up to this point, there hasn't been much explanation as to who the agents are or their relationship to the Matrix. They are really kind of seen as something inside the computer program. They are essentially programs, and we understand that much. But up to this point, their existence has been very physical, even even when they yes, they, they take over other people's bodies inside The Matrix and then they fight Neo, all of the fights up to the very end are a very physical fight, are a very are very grounded in guns and punching and all of this all of this stuff. And then the movie ends with Neo literally flying into the and flying and disappearing into Agent Smith. Played by Hugo Weaving, the the fantastic Hugo Weaving, he is maybe my favorite part of this of this whole movie. Um, And then you see him explode, and then Neo is all that remains after Agent Smith explodes everywhere. And it's a strange, strange moment that is given no explanation, is really given almost no context until the second and third movie where that moment is kind of explored and it changes the nature of who agent Smith is and what he can do and all sorts of other things. But it's a weird moment. And that really is kind of the precursor of everything that happens. If I remember correctly in the second and third movie, to me, that moment is more telling of where the trilogy goes more than, um, all the cool slow-mo, the, the choreography, the the philosophy, the, all of that, you have this moment where you go, what was that? What just happened? How did, what? And that is my recollection of watching the second and third movie is going, wait, what now? Who's the, okay. Um, honestly, uh, the first Matrix movie, if you haven't watched it in a while, I would really recommend revisiting it. There's a lot of really cool stuff here. I apologize for Gwen. Gwen. Barking in the background I don't know what her deal is she didn't watch the movie she has no idea what she's missing there's a lot of stuff in here that she remembers some of the corny stuff is still there theres all those moments that were parodied all the things all those lines that you go whoa <laughs> you know all that stuff there the the script isn't necessarily the best but it's really it really does work the whole movie really does work and is a fun heros sci-fi hero's journey. So, um, even if you don't watch the second and third movie, which I'm about to do, I would highly recommend revisiting The Matrix. Um, It is definitely one of, maybe, the best uh, sci-fi movies out there. Um, And uh, I will leave it at that. I'm going to uh, go away now. I'm going to go watch The Matrix Reloaded, and I will be back shortly. And I'm back. Time moves so strangely here. Just finished The Matrix Reloaded, put together a few notes, and I've come back to you to report on... Uh, basically my feelings on the second of the Matrix movies. Um, not as good as the first. There you have it. Uh, <laughs> okay, so before I go any further, if I am overly aggressive or angry about this movie, it's only because upon putting the movie into my DVD player, I discovered that I had inadvertently purchased the full-screen version of the movie, and I have no idea why that version even exists, and it just kind of made me angry for the first 15 minutes of the movie, which also led right into my anger over a particular gaffe in the movie, and I'll get into that here in a little bit. No, I'll get into it now. It really, with all the technology they have in this movie, with all the with everything they had going into this movie and what they put into this film, it really frustrated me and bothered me and took me out of the movie that when Agent Smith kind of has his big for, his big fight with uh, Neo um, uh, about 30 minutes into the movie, the entire time he's talking and delivering this really well-written speech, you can see a softbox in his glasses. For the entire speech, you can see a very specific style of light that they use on film sets reflected in his glasses. Why they couldn't take that out in post, I have no idea. Why they didn't notice that when they were shooting, I have no idea. But it bothers me so much. Okay, with that out of the way, before I go in, before I really get into the story of The Matrix Reloaded, um, I want to go back to the year that this movie came out. The first movie came out in 1999. The second one, Matrix Reloaded, came out in 2003. And... My memory of 2003 is several things. One was that I was kind of wrapping up my, I believe it was my second year of film school, and we went and saw this movie in the theater, of a bunch of us film students. We were out in Arizona at the time filming a, uh, a short film called Angel in Chains, and we all went, uh, we, got, we loaded up a couple of vans, and we, we drove to the theater to see it. Um, that's my big memory of Matrix Reloaded. Other than, the other thing is that 2003 was kind of um, my, that time period, not specifically that year, that was when I was really getting into uh, forums and chat uh, websites and message boards. And so I remember The the Matrix was one of those movies, uh, one of the first movies I really kind of disappeared down the rabbit hole then. Maybe maybe not. Maybe it was the first Spider-Man movie where I kind of got involved with a lot of conversations online. But The Matrix was definitely one of those online movies where you could go places and just have endless discussions about the symbolism, about the philosophy, about what certain words just meant. And I remember when uh, we found out that the movie was going to be called The Matrix Reloaded, we started really picking apart what that meant. What does reloaded mean? Um, and I basically remember that it came down to two basic concepts that people kind of uh, bandied about. One was basically people going, what's the second movie? And so essentially what you're having is, it's like a the gun is being reloaded after the first initial bout in the fight. Matrix reloaded, reloading the gun, second attack. I belong to a different camp. Um, the camp I belong to was essentially saying that we thought it meant neo uh, Mr. Anderson was going to be reloaded back into the matrix that he was going to be inserted back into it he was going to be captured and put back in and then he was going to have to find a way to fight his way out of the machine again he was going to be inside the machine but he was going to know he was going to know about the machine and so he was going to have to fight it from inside and so we were kind of excited about what this could possibly mean that is not what the movie ended up being about it all, and it really Matrix Reloaded essentially really was just a, you know, it's a sequel. It, the Reloaded doesn't really seem to have any extra weight or meaning behind it. Okay, so I think really this is the beginning of people's frustrations with this with this trilogy. I'll really, it's it, it, so it's it's almost a hard it's almost hard to get started on this because there's so much that could be said um, and what's fascinating to me is that while this kind of the matrix reloaded is where you can pinpoint like that is a problem that is a problem that is a problem Th- these reasons right here are the reasons why people don't like or certain people don't like the sequels there's so much of this movie that comes directly from the first movie that it's um... it's really kind of fascinating and it's just like people, I think, were kind of blinded by some of the the fight scenes and the cool special effects, and so they weren't expecting the philosophical conversation that is essentially taking place in The Matrix Reloaded. Um, on top of that, the movie does suffer from um, pacing and plotting issues. There's a lot going on here that could have been streamlined. There's a lot going on here that I think could be... Um, it could have been constructed in a better way, so that there would, have been, there would have been more suspension of disbelief, and there would have been higher and higher stakes going along. Uh, it honestly, I feel like the Matrix trilogy suffers from something I call the Quentin Tarantino dilemma, which is my <laughs> my belief, which is um, st- there's a you have a studio who goes, um, I don't know what this is about, I don't understand it, but here's some money, go make a movie. I feel like that's what happens with Quentin Tarantino. I feel like he needs an editor. I really feel like the Matrix movies needed a stronger um, producer, or production, you know, a producer who was more involved in the script, who was more involved in putting this thing together. Um, And and maybe Joel Silver. I think he was the producer of all of these movies. And maybe he had that. I don't honestly know what role he had. But I feel like they were left to their own devices. The Wachowskis were left to do whatever they wanted, and essentially made this trilogy of movies, which really could have been, in some ways, a little bit better. Because, uh, starting off, one of the major problems that this movie faces is something that I call the Superman Dilemma, um, which is essentially, how do you stop the Unstoppable? By the end of the first movie, Neo had practically become Superman. He He was able to stop overcome and soundly defeat that which was previously completely unstoppable he you know he went up face to face with with agent smith as well as two other agents in that hallway and just soundly destroyed them um so how do you create conflict for this character how do you if he can, if he can fly, if he can stop bullets with his mind, if he can, you know, move faster than anybody, and is essentially now that he understands the Matrix is not bound by anything, how do you create conflict for him? Um, I honestly think Richard Donner answered this question better with the first Superman movie than the Wachowskis did with this movie. Um, Richard Donner went crafting the story. Uh, for the first Superman movie basically said that they recognize the fact that Superman is invulnerable. You know, you, you can't stop Superman. He can fly faster than you can, you know, he can fly, he can bullets bounce off of him. What, what is his weakness? I and mean, yes, you have kryptonite, but what is honestly Superman's weakness? And Richard Donner and the, the screenwriter said, it's his heart. It's his, his emotional core. His weaknesses are the people he loves, which is really the Earth, which is all of these people. And so when you look at especially the first Superman movie, and even into the second Superman movie, you have a very vulnerable Superman. You have a very emotionally vulnerable Superman. And that is how you do it, I think. And it, it works really well. I think that's been like the key to success in a lot of the best Superman comic books, even. Um, however there is a perceived problem with the character of Superman in that he cannot be stopped and so here at the beginning of The Matrix Reloaded the Wachowskis try to answer that question because um, in the first movie if you remember you know Agent Smith was unstoppable his very presence an agent's presence just put the absolute fear into every single person Um, one agent was able to take out Morpheus who had been working years and years in The Matrix and so, how do you do it? Um, in the very first scene, basically, in the the first time uh, Neo meets some agents in the movie, he starts to fight them, and he it seems that he thinks he's going to be able to defeat them pretty handily, um, but they seem to be able to take him on. And what happens is he goes, "Hmm, upgrades," and so we're guess, we're kind of led to believe that somehow the the computer program has responded, I guess, to Neo's presence and have made their programs run faster, because that's essentially all what the agents are. They're just computer programs monitoring things and doing things. um, They also up the ante, and this gets into another one of the plotting problems, is that they bring back Agent Smith. Agent Smith was completely destroyed in the first movie. We see him completely actually explode and shatter all over the screen and when you take that idea and you realize what happened there is that Neo destroyed a computer program what they do, and it's actually a really good idea, I think it's a, it's pretty well executed is that um, Agent Smith is no longer an agent. Now he's just Smith. He is no longer part of the system but he still exists for some reason. He shouldn't exist and that in a lot of ways is what a computer virus is. It's a program that shouldn't exist, but is in your computer. And it starts infecting other parts of your computer. It starts taking over your computer. And it will eventually destroy your computer. I lost a computer in college to a, a virus and it was awful. And so that's really Smith's role in this movie. And it's really it's a concept that is perfectly realized in the in the Neo versus a billion Agent Smith's fight scene. It's um you have like this. You're starting to understand what Smith can do now. He's infecting all of these other people in the matrix. He's taking them over and using them to fight and fight Neo. The problem with that scene is, well, there's there's a lot of things you could talk about. That scene. It's a, it's a really fun scene to watch. It's a really it on a pure spectacle level. It's awesome. You know it's. Some of the special effects don't hold up quite as well. It's definitely easier to tell where the computer animation kicks in and where the, le- the real actors are. Um, but it's for on the spectacle side, it's great. But from a storytelling perspective, it sucks because it takes place in the first hour of the film. It takes place, like I think, 45 minutes in, if I remember correctly. And after you see Neo fight a billion Smiths, what are the Ninja Turtles going to do <laughs> to him? Um, the Ninja Turtles I'm referring to are the Merovingians' henchmen up in the sh- the chalet when they have their fight. Um, I call them the Ninja Turtles because that was Kelly actually saw this move before I did. Um, Kelly, my wife. And she goes, You're going to love it. There's a scene where they fight with all of the Ninja Turtle weapons. And so, ever since then, to me, that scene where Neo fights the guy in the chalet is the Ninja Turtle scene. Because if you watch, he fights every single person. Every person at one point during the fight will pick up one of the weapons used by the Ninja Turtles. It's kind of fun. But when he's fighting them, what possibly, what threat could they be to him if a billion Smiths could not stop him? I mean, while technically yes, he didn't defeat Smith in that moment, he didn't lose. He he got away safely and he lived to fight another day. So what are these four people gonna do to him when he's fighting anybody else throughout the movie or even into the next movie? What possibly could you throw at him that's gonna really be a challenge to him? And you can tell that the Wachowski's actually had a problem with that. There's because in that same Chalet fight sequence, there it happens twice where Neo chases somebody, but they get to the other side of the door before he does, and they were a- so they are able to close the door before he's able to get through it, which doesn't make any sense, because in the first Matrix movie, they already have demonstrated that he has uh, the ability to move extremely quickly within the Matrix. And we even see later on in the movie, when he wants to fly somewhere, he's able to fly there, super fast, like Sonic, boom, fast. So why is he chasing somebody on foot at the speed of a normal human? It doesn't. Like, it, it it just hurts your brain a little bit, and you kind of feel like that if it had been more well thought out, you wouldn't have this sequence where two times in a row he chases somebody only for them to get away, and they're not moving faster than him. All, they just have a slight lead on him and thus are able to beat him somewhere. It's a little bit frustrating. Um... And so you you feel like like especially the the problem with Agent Smith leads to the, this plotting and pacing problem where they seem to have like these really long drawn out conversations and then they go oh we should have them fight and so they have a really elaborate fight sequence and then they, which which gets you all amped up and excited and then they'll kind of lay back then for a little while and give you a really slow drawn out conversation again when really. That fight sequence with the Smiths shouldn't have happened until the very end. that should have been like the thing Neo did <laughs> like he should have been fighting the Smiths while Trinity was uh, being chased by other agents and getting shot and all of that like that should have been that would have been a amazing climax to this movie and I feel like you could use a lot of the same set pieces and use a lot of the same conversations but just a slight reorder of things I think might have led to a more satisfying um Film experience. The other thing I think that was going against this movie is that it is a very, I call it the graying <laughs> dilemma, um, in which we, you take that which was thought to be black and white, and you you just mash them together and to make it gray. This movie, and it, it's a very, again, going back to the, the anime and the Eastern influences of the filmmakers... It is a concept that comes, you know, you see a lot in Japanese filmmaking and in Oriental, whatever you want to call it, Eastern filmmaking, where you have a lot of movies that don't necessarily have um, an antagonist. You take a movie, uh, a great example of this is a movie called Grave of the Fireflies, which I recently watched. It's a movie about a, basically a, a brother and a sister um, in Japan after their city has been firebombed. And it's really just a story of survival. And there's a lot of internal conflict. There's a lot of even external conflict. They're fighting to survive in this war-torn country. But they don't necessarily have an antagonist. There's nobody out to get them. There's nobody um, chasing them down. There's nobody for them to fight against. Ultimately, at the end of the movie, um, the, the villain of the movie is the, the older brother's own sense of pride. And it's a fascinating concept, and I think they do something really interesting with it here in Matrix Reloaded, but it's a concept that I'm not convinced Western, uh, a Western audience was fully prepared for. Um, because essentially what this movie does in Matrix Reloaded, we discover this, this conversation begins to take place that basically says... Um, that there aren't any good guys or bad guys in this story, but rather everyone is serving their purpose. Everyone needs to exist and everyone needs to be doing what they're doing um, like if, if they stop doing what they were doing, what then? you know um, you look at you, you, so it, it, it subverts a lot <laughs> it subverts and challenges a lot of the of the central conceit and ideas behind the first film or at least the ideas the western, us in the West kind of brought to the movie, where we went, ah, the agents are bad, the ma- the Matrix is bad, the humans are good, we must fight for, you know, fight for Zion, and all these other things. And then you kind of realize through these series of conversations that really, no, this is all kind of how it's supposed to be. This is the world as it is now. If you destroy the machines, what would the humans do? Because if you destroy the machines, then as the as the guy says it, what do you do for electricity? What do you do for running water? What do you do? You need machines. Humans need machines. However, machines need humans to keep them running and to keep them all, you know, keep them functional. So now you have this relationship it, that you have to have this coexisting situation. So there really is no good or bad. The only bad, it turns out, is Smith. Um... Smith has become a computer virus, and he is a computer virus that is threatening to shut down all the machines as, and also wipe out the humans. You know, again, because if the machines are gone, the humans are basically dead, and vice versa. And he is just, he is this uncontrollable rogue agent that both sides need to deal with because neither side wants him. Corrupting the the machines don't want him corrupting the matrix, and the humans don't want him around because he is extremely good at fighting and killing humans. So it's 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 interesting. It has some really interesting stuff going on, but again, it's a kind of this. The second movie, it it, it takes you to a place you're not necessarily expecting, and it's one that I don't know if a lot of people necessarily, maybe in America, wanted to go. Um, it, I mean, a lot of people. I don't know. Like you have a lot of people who really like these movies. And then you have a lot of people who just go like... <laughs> like when I was I was online earlier tonight um, ranting and raving that I had accidentally bought a full screen copy of The Matrix Reloaded and a friend of mine goes, what? There were sequels to those movies? There are no sequels to The Matrix. There's only The Matrix. It's the same kind of relationship people have with the Star Wars prequels. We have what we like and we, we can ignore the others if we don't like them. People don't seem to like Reloaded and Revolutions. And I think a lot of it comes from some of these these pacing issues. On top of it, there's this other thing the Wachowskis did. And it's, honestly, it's like they didn't do themselves any favors. Um, there is a lot... The, the heroes of this movie go through the majority of this movie having no idea what they're doing. Um, and so if they don't know what they're doing, how do we, the audience, how are we supposed to know what they're doing? Um... It's, it's kind of frustrating, because if you follow the plot of the movie, you have uh, Morpheus, and you have Neo, and you have Trinity. We'll just you No, know, we have those three. We'll focus on those three. You have them. They get a message that the Oracle wants to see Neo, but and we kind of get the sense that Neo's been looking for the Oracle, but can't find her anywhere. So he goes and he meets with her, and she says, you need to go to the source, because if the one finds the source... And this is what Morpheus thinks, also this is the prophecy that once the once the one you know Neo gets to the source of the matrix, the war ends, and so then he goes throughout the rest of the movie trying to get to the source, so he has to go find the keymaker who's this guy who can get them into this place where he can get to the source and it's and that's kind of the movie. It's, like it's then him trying to get into this building where they've kind of said this is where the source of the Matrix is, and he's going to destroy the source. Except when he gets there, he is confronted with the architect in one of the most unfortunate monologues in film history. Um watching it for the I don't know how many times I've seen this movie. It's probably this is probably my we'll say sixth time seeing this movie. It's probably more. But the more times you watch it, the more you really do understand what the architect is saying. That being said, it's still not the best written monologue of all time, and it's a very, it's a very frustrating monologue because at the very beginning, he, the architect says, "You're human," which means you're going to understand some of this and some of this you're not, and it almost feels like an out. And then they, they, they seem to. The Wachowskis, and maybe they just, maybe they're wordsmiths, and I don't know it, but it really feels like they wrote up a, a speech, and then they pulled out their thesaurus, and changed all the words, <laughs> found all, the, all these great synonyms for words that they wanted to use, and then gave that to an actor, because it's a very convoluted, very... Um, exposition heavy monologue that explains the history of the matrix and the history of the world and he introduces this idea that the one this messiah that is neo isn't really all that special it is only that in that the one symbolizes a new moment in earth's history when basically they restart zion there's been neo is the sixth one to show up. And every time that happens, they plug him back into the mainframe and Zion is destroyed and a new Zion is started with like 23 new people who will repopulate the Earth and, there are, and then they will be told as they are released from the Matrix that they are the first. And it goes on and on like this forever. And so, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not terrible. There's a lot of really great sequences in it. and honestly, some of my favorite special effects of this movie. Um, some of my favorite sequences involve special effects that you can't tell are special effects. Um, the car chase sequence. There's a whole car chase, motorcycle chase down a, an interstate, which is just phenomenal. It is one of the best car chases ever. And a lot of it really works because there's a lot of cars that aren't really there. They're, I mean, there's a lot of cars that are there so they can weave around them and the motorcycle can do stuff. But then to make it even look more dangerous, they put some uh even more packed, they put some CG cars in there and they and it's it's great. It's a really great sequence. Um it's probably the best sequence of the film. Um the other problem I think this movie suffers from and what why people kind of don't like it so much, is that there's all there's a very strong sense of sequelitis in this movie. Um there are sequen like it ends in almost the same way the first one ends. In which we have one of our main characters mortally wounded, and the other one just then and the love of that person's life just somehow magically heals them. I think it works a little bit better in this in this one than it does in the last one, but because it's the second time we've seen it, you just kind of go, "Oh, look what they're look what they're doing again." That's that's great, cool. Love heals all wounds, I guess. Meh, you know. It, it there's some repetition there, and you can also get the very strong sense that the Wachowskis are trying to outdo themselves and try to raise the bar with their special effects and with their... the sequences. And so you have this huge bullet-time sequence in which two trucks plow into one another. And there's some cool stuff going on. It's just... I think it's the combination of the, the really strong Eastern influences that kind of... I don't think Western society was prepared for, necessarily, because we are really... And here in America, I think we really are a people who we like good guys, we like bad guys, and we want to see them fight, and we want to see good triumph. You tell me that there must be a coexistence of good and evil, that there really is no such thing as good and evil, it's just a state of being, and that, you know, honestly, we need these people over here to keep the balance, and if they're not there, then what happens we go out of balance? We need balance in the world. We need these things. That's a tough pill for some people to swallow, and they don't really like it. Um, and so I think you have that. and then on top of that, you have character like every single character in this movie is their name is a reference to something else. And really to really appreciate that character and the story that they're telling with that character, you have to do your own independent research, which can be fun, but it can also be super frustrating. Like you have a character in here who's called the Merovingian. And you're like, well, well, that's a very unique, interesting-sounding name. And you look it up, and you're like, what is the Merovingian? You go, oh, there's the whole history here of this, this French dynasty of kings that were called the Merovingians, and it's connected to the Gnostic Gospels. This is weird, and what does that say about the character? Well, really nothing. And that's the other frustrating part about it, is that the Wachowskis seem to really want you to go do outside reading so that you can learn more. About some of these things, but none of the things you learn really influence the story of the Matrix, which is a blessing and a curse, in my opinion. Personally, I like the idea that these guys have such a strong sense of what they believe, they, they seem to have a very strong worldview. And because I mean, the, the, honestly, when it comes right down to it, no author, no writer can divorce him or herself of their worldview, it will be in there, and you can see it the way characters treat other characters, the the inherent justice of the characters and you know what happens in the actions and the reactions and what are the consequences of actions You can judge a author's worldview by all of that. And I think that's fascinating. The wachowski's taken a step further by saying not only is this what we believe, but we want you to read some of this stuff. So we're going to name a character named Persephone and she's going to act kind of weird. and if you want to understand why she acts the way she does, you need to go read some Greek mythology, <laughs> and so it's 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 weird. It's because once you read it, you don't necessarily have a better understanding of her relationship with the Merovingian. You don't necessarily have a better understanding of why she treats the other way she does, but you understand maybe where the character came from for the Wachowskis. But it's not necessarily something like it doesn't necessarily influence the Matrix, which is frustrating because it seems like it should really. It just, at the end of the day, you go and read about Persephone, what you're going to get is more knowledge on the Greek myth of Persephone. Um, So all of this, putting, you know... So this is, I think, some of the the, the frustrations people have with this movie. Some of the frustrations I definitely have um, with the movie. I think the biggest problems with it are that I think it's very exposition-heavy, and some of the exposition is is littered with very big words that we're not used to. There's nothing wrong with big words, but it's just when introducing so many theories and philosophies and concepts. And some of it is just philosophy. Some of it is very specific to what the Matrix is. Some of it is just there. And you go, could, could that be worded better? Could, could you tell me what you're, you're talking about a little bit? You know, when you, you never quite can tell if a character is talking and they're just trying to challenge Neo's worldview or if they're actually telling him, no, this is what you're supposed to do, because everything has a very specific title, and these titles are sometimes a computer term, and sometimes it's a, a term that comes out of the Old Testament, or out of a Greek myth, or out of something else entirely. <laughs> so I think some of those... I think you, you couple all of this together, and I think it, it led to a general disappointment. If I remember correctly, the movie did well in the theaters, but I wouldn't be surprised... Because um, the other thing is is that Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions were filmed back-to-back or concurrently. They were filmed together like The Lord of the Rings. Um, I th- I wouldn't be surprised if they had filmed Reloaded and then waited a year to do re- Revolutions. I wouldn't be surprised if um, Warner Brothers, or I think it's Warner Brothers made this movie. I wouldn't be surprised if they had a slightly smaller budget for Revolutions. I think they were very smart to put these two together. And they actually released them very close to each other. They Reloaded was released in the summer, and then Revolutions was released in the winter of the same year. And it's, you know, honestly, it's it's an interesting movie. I'm not convinced it's a necessary movie, um, because what the groundwork that is laid, and we'll get into this in the third movie, but the groundwork that is, the seed is planted at the beginning, at the very end of the first Matrix movie. You have Neo talking on the phone, and he says to the computers... I'm going to show them a world where they don't need you. He doesn't say I'm going to destroy you. He says I'm going to show them a world where they don't need you. And that is the and then you start seeing that is actually what is happening in the second movie and I think that is if I remember correctly that is ultimately where the third movie ends is with that concept. And so that it it feels like a detour. For those who aren't really super paying attention. Because the first movie was so humans against the machine. And now this one, this movie begins out as humans against the machine. But turns into humans maybe need the machines. Maybe we can coexist, exist. Maybe we don't have to fight each other. But well, we're going to fight each other. And then it ends in a, a really great cliffhanger. And, and actually there's a scene at the end of this movie that I still haven't figured out. And I'm hoping I can figure it out. When I watch the third movie, which I'm about to do, but uh, Neo seems to exhibit some sort of supernatural powers outside of the Matrix. Um, he, he stops these mechanical squids with his hand or with his mind, destroys them basically, and then collapses into a coma. And that's how the second movie ends. And so I kind of want to find out what happens because I don't honestly remember how they resolve that situation. I remember certain scenes from the third movie. But I don't remember how or why he has those abilities. So we're going to dive into that next. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch the Revolutions, and then I'm going to get back with you. Be right back. And the credits roll, and the Matrix Revolutions is over. (laughs) Okay, uh, before I get into this, I have to admit right up front, I actually kind of really like Matrix Revolutions. I know it's kind of an unpopular opinion amongst some groups, some peoples. But there's a lot I think to really like and enjoy, um, in this third installment. Especially, I think there's a couple of things that I think really shine in this third install in the third installment. Uh, one is the women. The women of the Matrix universe I think are pretty phenomenal. There's a lot of really strong women doing a lot of kind of amazing things in terrible times, which I think is cool. It's something that the Wachowskis didn't have to do, and I think it's something that often gets overlooked. And, I think it's cool that they're included, and I really liked them. I think they're some of my favorite parts. Um, somebody else that I have I've been I have failed to mention in the the first two parts of this podcast is Don Davis. I don't think enough praise is heaped on what Don Davis did. Um, for these movies. Don Davis uh, composed the music for The Matrix. Um, Most of the time it seems when people remember The Matrix soundtracks, it is the kind of the rock techno pop soundtracks, um, the electronica and all that kind of stuff that really gets remembered. Those were the soundtracks that sold, but Don Davis created just an instantly recognizable score that I really, really like, and I think it's a score that kind of matured and grew through the three movies. Um, Ending in this movie with a really big choral piece that is nothing short of, dare I say, sacred or religious in nature. Um, And that's, I think, one of maybe the most surprising things about the Matrix movies. They started in such a... um, techno cyberpunk place and so it still ends there but by the end of the movie you really feel like it's an allegory um there's there's so much religious um iconography and some and symbolism it's it's all on purpose too which is really what's astounding it's not just like oh look at that i wonder if they knew that it's like there, there's so much animation going on there's so much such specifically planned out shots that it had to be on purpose I mean down to the very fact that this movie revolves around a character who um is prophesied as the one who sacrifices his life and then at the end after he's died as far as we can tell um there's a hope for his soon return. <laughs> it's it's all very very Christian in nature and and um, and other religions I'm sure as well, but as a as a um North American man. It's like I can't help but see the New Testament in a lot of what happens in this final installment. Um, what's interesting about this final, the final chapter, the Matrix movies, is that there is far less talk in this movie. There's far less explanation of what's going on. There's far less exposition. It's almost wall to wall action. I mean, you have a couple of moments here and there, but The Matrix Reloaded, it really is that second act where everything kind of stops, so you can explain what's going on, you can have some character development, and the third act is really, like, the conclusion. Um, There's still some weird pacing issues um, between, you know, you have the entire fight, you have this moment in in the movie where you have Um, Basically, the party splits up, and you have these three stories that are told. And what's interesting is that each story is told almost in its complete form before moving on to the next story. So you have like the the fighters down in Zion fighting the the robot invasion, and then you also have um, Trinity and Neo trying to get to the robot city, and then you have Morpheus and Niobe um, trying to pilot the ship back to the dock. And that's like the second half of the film, but you spend, like, you don't cut back and forth between the three of those. You really spend like here's twenty minutes to this story, here's twenty minutes to that story, here's twenty minutes to that story. Um, the only fault I see in that really is that it it, it, it provides a very strange, almost roller coaster of emotion and roller coaster of storytelling. In that you get these conclusions to each story. And then you kind of have this moment of like, oh yeah, I forgot, there's still that whole thing that is going on, that whole other thing that's over there. And I can't help but wonder if there couldn't have been a way that those three stories could have been intertwined in a way that the climaxes of each of those stories are happening at one time, and so you have a more gradual build to something kind of big and interesting, because for the most part, all those stories are kind of taking place concurrently. what are, at the end of Matrix Reloaded, I mentioned that Neo has some newfound powers in the, in the real world. Frustratingly, that's never explained in the Matrix Revolutions. At first, it seems to be hinted that, basically, for lack of a better word, uh, Neo's soul is trapped in limbo. It's for, and it's never explained how it happens or why it happens, but at some point when he jacked out the last time, part of him stayed in the machine and that part kind of ends up in this limbo um... and so it's kind of at first you think oh maybe because he still you know there's still a connection between him and his soul that he still has some of the abilities he had in the matrix but then about forty five minutes of the film after his friends go down and fight their way through club hell they get his soul back from the Merovingian who essentially in this movie really is kind of revealed to be a Hades-like figure uh... ruling the underworld Um, they are able to get uh, Neo back, you know, because he's still in the machine. They're able to get him, and he's able to come up out of his coma. But even once he's out of his coma and everything is normal, he still is somehow able to explode the machines with his mind. And it's never explained, and that's kind of frustrating because the whole point is, at least especially in the first movie, it seemed to be that you could do all of these things while in the Matrix, if you could understand that you're in a computer program, you would be able to do amazing powers and abilities and all these things, while in the real world you're trapped in this existence. And so it's weird that he starts exhibiting some of his abilities in the real world, and it's never explained. Um, the movie concludes with a very large um, fight Uh, between uh, Neo and Smith and all the Smiths in the rain and it's this really big Superman fight that um, for those Superman fans out there you can't help but think of uh, (laughs) Superman uh, 2 that climactic battle over Metropolis where Superman's fighting uh, the three other Kryptonians but it's this really big awesome sequence that like the first time I saw it even in the theater I was like they need to make a Superman movie like this because a lot of what's going on is what you see in Superman comics, and it's, it's fun. It's a fun sequence. The frustrating thing about it, again, and I, I kind of touched on this during the reloaded sequence, um, is that it ends the same way the first movie ends. It ends with um, basically Neo infecting Smith and Smith exploding it's kind of it's this weird repetition that i think ultimately led for a lot of people to be um have an unsatisfied feeling at the end of the movie it's really ingenious the way they deal with it you know basically neo sacrifices himself to the robot city they plug him in and so when um uh, after the fight after smith tries to infect um Neo, he doesn't realize that Neo's actually plugged into the Matrix, and specifically plugged into the Robot City, and so once he infects Neo, the Robot City is able to pinpoint Smith's location, and is basically, for lack of a better phrase, able to download or install an antivirus program um, that is able to isolate Smith, and it goes into Smith, and it goes into all the Smiths, and all the Smiths explode, um, leaving this new world. And that's kind of the end of the movie. It ends with that, and it goes on to this moment between the architect and the oracle, and this new little girl we met in the third movie named Sati. And it's it's kind of a strange, ambiguous ending, in which the the architect basically promises that any other humans who want to be freed from the Matrix will be, but they're, they are going to live in peace, and that is... I think a a very cool, that is the one thing I would really praise the Matrix movies for, is that it is a movie where people are fighting, by the end of it, they are fighting for peace. They're not fighting for dominion, they're not fighting to eradicate somebody. They are fighting for peace. So in the end of the movie, there is a, basically, people have to come to an agreement where they say, I'm going to exist, and you are going to exist, and we're going to try to coexist together for as long as we can until, of course, we kill each other all over again. I do think that is very cool. Um, I wish the conclusion was a little bit more... I mean, and that's the thing about peace. It's always kind of up in the air. And so that ending of, like, will it last, won't it last, will the sacrifices be worth it? We don't know. We will see. That is kind of a cool ending. It's just, it's ambiguous, and it's also between the scene is between basically four characters that while we really kind of liked the Oracle we never really got to know her and Seraph is there as someone who we didn't really ever get to know the architect is there who only ever had one scene that was awful and then Satie is there and we don't really know a whole lot about her other than she used to be a program or is still a program that doesn't have much function in the Matrix and so for the movie for the whole trilogy to end with that moment Instead of ending it with Morpheus, instead of ending it with Trinity, instead of ending it with Neo, or um, any of the other characters we've come to know and love over this trilogy, is kind of a strange step to take, I think. And I think it. I think that's one of the things that kind of frustrated some people. The other thing that, um, as far as the as far as the whole movie experience goes, one thing that frustrated me was. The first time I watched the, the first Matrix movie, after having seen the entire trilogy, I realized that the second two movies are completely encapsulated in Neo's conversation on the phone. If you go back and watch that last scene in the, in the first Matrix movie, it ends with Neo telling the computers or telling Agent Smith or whoever's listening on the phone, he said, I'm going to fight and I'm going to show them a world where they don't need you. And the th- what he says, to the- and that's exactly what happens in the second two movies. And I mean, while, <laughs> while it's, I mean, that's cool in one, in one regard. In the other regard, I make, for me, it really makes the second two movies feel really unnecessary. Because I got that from the first movie. I got all of this from the first movie. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And in the end of the first Matrix movie, he flies into the stratosphere. Off to do that. And for me, to me, that tells me, well, in my mind, he succeeds. It's a good ending. It's a happy ending. And he's going to go do that thing. The second two movies are basically like four hours dedicated to that. those five sentences. Like, well, this is how he did that. And this is you know how one does that. And to me, that kind of makes the movies feel a little unnecessary. Because ultimately, Morpheus was right. Neo was right. Um, they just didn't realize... There was aspects of their rightness they didn't know, but ultimately they were correct. And it's, I kind of wish that the second and third movie diverged from that concept. That you know, and while I like where it ends with this fight for peace, what if they were wrong? What if they couldn't have peace? What if they, you know? Or what if the fight that he started in the first movie wasn't the fight that he needed to be having? Or what if some you know? I wish there had been some kind of Divergence from that closing monologue. I think that would have made them feel more necessary or like You can say that but saying that really requires this and I don't and if that's what the Wachowskis think they did I'm not entirely sure it comes through although Although I have to again. I do have to give them credit for their fight for peace Neo has to sacrifice himself and in the end he is dead as far as we can tell and may never come back or maybe he will come back and but it, it, there is like if you want peace if you want true peace i do believe that it does have to be a sacrifice um from both parties and maybe and very specifically you need to really realize it needs to be a sacrifice from you um to give to the other side if you you know if you really mean it so i think that's very cool i really do kind of like a lot of what happens in the matrix revolutions um but i can see where other people don't and i think really my and this is just my opinion correct me fight me that i don't mind i really think a lot of the bad blood people have towards matrix revolutions comes from matrix reloaded i think reloaded is a is the weakest of the three movies um it has the most exposition it has the most it has the longest most uh unneeded sequences whether it's the uh, the burning man rave down in Zion or some of the fight scenes that take place. There's a lot of stuff there that just feels like excess. Where this this third movie, while it has some plotting issues, I think it moves along at a much faster clip and I think it is a little bit more economic with some of the things it does. And it has a lot more fascinating things to look at. Like just this concept where in at the near the end of Reloaded, uh Smith is able to download one of him uh, he's able to download a copy of himself into a human being because he infects somebody who then uses the phone to wake himself up in the you know in the real world, but he has basically replaced this person, and so the first i mean reloaded ends with this cliffhanger of like and now Smith is in the real world, and then you see how that plays out in revolutions and I think that's really kind of cool and it's a very memorable sequence and part of the story. I think Revolutions has a lot more in it than Reloaded does. That being said, I don't think Reloaded or Revolutions is necessary. I think you could watch the first Matrix movie and get everything you need out of it. All you're going to miss out on really are some pretty cool fight scenes, you know, and I mean the Matrix movies I think as much as this might pain the Wachowskis, I think there's a lot more style than substance in these movies. Um, there's a lot to think about. They they do try to infuse it with a lot of philosophy and a lot of things going on there. But I don't... I feel like you're going to get more out of it depending on how much you bring to it. It's not necessarily going to change the way you see the world. It's not necessarily going to change the way you, you perceive things. But it may encourage you to reflect on your own worldview and i think that at the end of the day is a good thing and maybe the best thing going for the matrix movies is that it makes you question how you see certain things you know and to get in a way that for at least for me it made me reflect on my own personal worldview and go do i agree with some of this stuff some of the stuff i do agree with i think that's interesting some of the stuff i do not agree with and that's kind of interesting um, in conclusion um, in my opinion, the first Matrix movie is a is a, is a classic sci-fi, and I would recommend it really to anybody. Reloaded and Revolutions need to be watched together because they really are a single movie stretched into two. And Reloaded is the one you're going to have to get through to enjoy Revolutions. And Revolutions still has, and there's still some kind of absurd stuff going on in here. If you thought the 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 ATATs in Star Wars or an incredibly bad design. Wait till you see some of the machines at work in Matrix Revolutions. There's a lot of stuff going on here that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of religious stuff down to, you know, after Neo sacrifices himself, you have the giant godlike voice going, It is finished. It's It's funny. There's just some stuff in there that just, it's just kind of funny. And there's, I would kind of like to see the podcast, How Did This Get Made?, address some of these things because they have a kind of a cynical way of approaching some of these movies and a way to laugh at some of this stuff. And there's some of the stuff that, due to the script, is a little laughable. But then there's also really neat moments where you have, like, Trinity seeing the sun for the first time, and her only time in her entire life she saw the sun in the real world. And it's this really sweet little moment. And then you go back to the war. Um... So yeah, I would recommend the first one, and if you enjoyed it, check out the second and third one. Um, But I would say you're not missing too terribly much. Last thing I want to add to this conversation is if you've already seen the Matrix movies and you have no interest in revisiting them, there was a, a little movie that came out one year before the first Matrix movie. It came out in 1998. It's called Dark City. It stars Jennifer Connelly, Rufus Sewell, um Kiefer Sutherland, William Hurt and uh, Melissa George um who you might know from Alias. She played Sydney Bristow's crazy um sister. But it's a movie that is very very similar to the Matrix in a lot of in a lot of ways. It's directed by Alex Proyas who you probably know from the uh he directed uh The Crow and I Robot. Um it's a very interesting movie. Um, that I that did not get enough attention, I don't think. It's a movie I discovered much later. And when I watched it, I was like, this is a lot like The Matrix. <laughs> it's a really fun, interesting, dark sci-fi that if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend watching it. And if you haven't seen it in a long time, if you haven't seen it since like 1998, I would revisit that first. Revisit that, then watch The Matrix. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, slightly extended podcast where I am all by myself for Tumnus, who just came in decided to start shaking and scratching and squeaking doors. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it, and uh, we'll return back to our normally scheduled uh, podcasting. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at MoviesYouShouldLove.com.